Okay, let's get to the latest on COVID in the province. The premier today, early this morning, uh, using the words crisis and scary. He held his uh, daily press conference uh, earlier around 10 a.m. this morning, and Premier Doug Ford not mincing words, saying that, quote, we are in a crisis and it's scary. Now, this after a grim new milestone for the province. We today are over 4,000, over 4,000 new cases for the first time. In fact, we're over 4,200. 4,249 new COVID cases being reported here in Ontario on this Friday. Now, we should say that comes with a bit of a caveat because approximately 450 of today's cases are due to what they're calling a data upload delay. So roughly about 500 of those cases really should have been logged in the last day or two. But still, you know, 4,000 plus, uh, it's an eye-popping number to be sure that will get your get your attention. Now, the news comes on the heels of yesterday's news that Ontario students won't be returning to classes scheduled this coming Monday. And for more on all of this, we're joined now by the NDP's education critic, Merritt Stiles, is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Merritt, good afternoon. Nice to talk with you as always. Good afternoon. Great to be here. All right. Uh, considering the growing caseload, as I just mentioned, over 4,000 today in the province, did the government, did the Ontario government make the right decision in delaying the return of kids to the classroom? I think, sadly, that uh, this this had to happen. Um, but I, I guess what I would, would argue is that uh, I wish we, I don't think we should be in this situation right now. You know, the government announced that they're going to be closing schools and they seem to be focused on that, but they're not really focused on what it's going to take to reopen schools. And I think that's the hard work that should have been happening and needs to happen very urgently. All right. What is it exactly uh, do you think needs to happen? What should be done to make sure the schools can reopen, stay open and do so safely? I mean, there's a few things that we've been calling for pretty consistently, but I'm just going to reiterate them. And I've been, uh, and myself and our leader, Andrew Horvath, have been saying it over and over and over again. We need to have a in-school asymptomatic testing program across the province. Uh, that should have been in place in the fall. We were pushing hard for it. Uh, now, today, we're hearing the government say they're looking at doing that. Uh, but what what is the plan? And are they finally willing to invest in that? We also need to reduce class sizes. I, this is an issue we've been talking about. It makes sense. You can't have our students properly physically distancing at the numbers that they're in right now in classrooms. It's just not possible, for especially for younger students. That's not That's got to change. And the government should have been doing that in the fall. And they need to do better now. Um, and, and we need to support families, right? We need to make sure that families have the flexibility as well, especially right now with schools closed, to be able to stay home and support their children uh, as, they're, as they're learning remotely. Um, and then the other big one is, is ventilation in our schools. And I know the minister keeps talking about, you know, having spent all this money on that, but it's just simply not, we're not seeing it in, in schools at all. Uh, the many schools, they can't even get a window to open in a classroom. So uh, we've got big problems there, and all of that needs to be in place, and, and it should have been in place uh, long ago. All right. I want to talk about a few of those. Let's start with the last one, ventilation, because isn't that more in the long term? I mean, is that something these HVAC systems? I mean, this is a little more complicated than just being able to open a few windows, right? I mean, this is not something that can be done in the next week or two. 
hundred percent. I mean, when the when the premier, you remember back in August, the premier said, "Hey, we're going to give fifty million to school boards to go out and 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 put new HVAC systems in, and they'll do it in the next few weeks." And and I honestly, like, if you look at any of our schools, many of our schools are over a hundred years old, for goodness sake. And you can't just walk in and 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 add new HVAC systems. It takes time. It takes money. And and we simply and that's certainly also, frankly, not enough money to get the job done. So yes, those things take time. In the meantime, though, there are things that they could do, and they and they should have been doing. Um, they have managed to get some uh, HEPA filters into schools, but not nearly enough. And and again, I know certainly opening a window is is not the is not a great answer, especially in the winter. But at this point, it's what we're hearing from experts is one of the few things that we could do. We just have to make sure at this point, schools can't even open a window. So it is a long-term issue. I totally agree. Uh, I just wish, wish that we were a bit further ahead on this than, than we are now. And you mentioned it takes money, Merritt, and everything that you've just talked about and laid out here, uh, smaller classroom sizes, that means more teachers uh, hired. I mean, all of this uh, takes money. And is that at the crux of the problem, do you believe here, is finding the money to do the, these things? Yeah, 100%. I mean, there, 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 I can't think of a good reason why this government, why Mr. Lecce and the Premier haven't uh, taken these steps already. The only reason is they're sitting on uh, a lot of, of relief dollars they don't seem to want to spend. And we've, we've, we've seen this over and over, but, but they aren't spending. They don't seem to want to invest the dollars uh, to make this happen. And, and that's what it does take. And we're in a crisis right now. So if we want to reopen schools, we have to reopen them safely. We have, uh, as you said, like just terrifying numbers out there. And I hear the premier telling everybody, you know, hunker down, do what you need to do. But what I'm hearing from parents is they need the government to step up here, too, to spend the money that's necessary to get this done. Here with the NDP's education critic, Merritt Stiles, it uh, was less than a week ago that the education minister, Stephen Lecce, was last Saturday told parents that kids would be returning to school as scheduled. Uh, That, of course, we now know is not happening after yesterday's announcement. Uh, What, if anything, should we take from that, do you think? Well, this is this has been a pattern for this government and this minister in particular. We've seen this flip flopping. Uh, they they wait until the very last minute to tell parents and and teachers and workers and students uh, what 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 they can expect uh, in just a matter of days. And you know, people need some time to adjust to these things. Um, we we I know everybody wants to be back in school, but they want to be back in a safe space. And they've been waiting for the minister to make a decision. Uh, as always wait till the last minute and then they make a decision and we're all left picking up the pieces as parents. It's really frustrating. And I think, uh, I think people are tired of it and they want a government that has a plan to take action and make the investment that we need to get our schools reopened. And at this point, I have to say, I'm not terribly confident that the government's going to be in a place to reopen in two weeks because they have not done the work that needs to be done. All right, the uh, positivity rate has uh, jumped substantially in schools. That was a big part of the reason why we got the announcement uh, yesterday. I think it's gone from 5 to somewhere a uh, little north of 20%. Uh, percent. Now, some are arguing that's because of the holidays and get-togethers, not because of transmission inside the classroom. A- and others are complaining that schools are not sharing enough information. They're not sharing transmission data with the uh, public. Should there be more transparency so w- we can make uh, educated decisions for our kids? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also why 
we need the testing and tracing programs in place. Uh, the government resisted that for months and months. And then at the very last minute before the holidays, they started to do some asymptomatic testing in some schools in, in some parts of the province. But we need, we need that in place. We need to know uh, who's who's got it, so they can be they can stay home and isolate and protect everyone. Uh, we need to know we need better, more transparency from the government and from I think from school boards as well. But ultimately, like we need to know, and the government has resisted this. I mean, the minister likes to throw around figures like ninety nine percent of our students don't have COVID, but we don't know that, and we never did, to be honest. And so when these numbers came out, um, and I think if you look at the numbers, I'm just going through them myself, but it's pretty clear that some of this was these numbers actually peaked before the holidays. Uh, there was increases before the holidays. So, you know, the minister has, has some, some answering to do as well for the public because he made a lot of claims uh, about the lack of transmission in schools. Well, I, I think we need to know what's happening, and that is going to mean testing and tracing in schools. All right, just finally, and I think you sort of referenced this a second ago, Merritt, but does the NDP, do you see this uh, pause on in-class learning as a, as a short-term thing? Uh, they're talking January 25th now, or do you think that this is going to be a, a rather uh, long uh, long haul for uh, parents and students? Well, you know, I, I it's heartbreaking. I'll say that first. It's heartbreaking. I certainly never wanted us to be in this place again, and I know that parents out there certainly uh, didn't. Uh, and teachers are struggling too, right? I mean, many of them are parents as well. So they've got kids at home and then they're teaching from home. Uh, we should never have gotten to this place. Uh, are we going to see schools reopen? I hope so. I really do. But the government has to uh, has to rush now uh, to do the things that they should have been doing in the fall to prepare so that our schools are ready to reopen. And that means spending the money, getting the work done. And I'm, I'm worried that they're way behind on this. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful because I know how hard Ontario have worked uh, to try to curb this this uh, the spread of COVID, and I and I know how hard they're working right now, and I hope that the government will step up and do the same thing. All right, I'm going to use a worn out phrase. I'm going to put you down as cautiously optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Merritt Styles, education critic for the NDP. Thanks as always for the time. Happy New Year, and have a safe weekend. With the COVID numbers over 4,000 in the province today, Premier Ford also talking earlier this morning about taking even further measures when it comes to uh, lockdowns and uh, restrictions. Maybe doing something much like our neighbor, Quebec, which will institute a month-long curfew starting tomorrow to try and stem the COVID tide. Dr. Matthew Otten is an infectious disease expert at Jewish General Hospital in Montreal, and he's on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Doctor, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on. Good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, could you explain, first off, just maybe the rationale behind the curfew? I mean, is the thought in Quebec that the majority of COVID transmission is happening, I don't know, in the evening and overnight? I don't think that the uh, public health data necessarily shows that. Uh, certainly, there's been uh, there's been lots of um, uh, public health data that it is shown on the on Quebec's website, indicating that the majority of outbreaks are happening in a few uh, in a few particular sectors, most notably uh, workplaces, and apparently uh, chief amongst those are food preparation. Uh, uh, workplaces, uh, as well as, uh, to a lesser extent, other things like uh, care facilities and schools. So those are sort of the 
major contributors of outbreaks, those are the places that uh, should be targeted. I don't think anyone has said that they expect that uh, that uh, the curfew is targeting a huge proportion over those uh, over that uh, time. I expect part of the rationale is that there are some reports from other countries that when curfews are used as part of a package of measures, that it seems to help bring down community transmission, although there's definitely no clear evidence that curfews in and of themselves contribute uh, to that. All right, and it's fairly restrictive. It's uh, from, uh, if I got this right, 8 p.m. till 5 in the morning for a month, for four weeks, and the only reason you can leave your house is for work? Uh, there's a few other uh, exceptions. Uh, uh, one of the exceptions is that if you have, for example, a dog who needs to be walked, then you can be out and walking your dog uh, after that uh, time. Uh, but for the most uh, for the most part, that's correct. That unless there's some medical emergency, if you have something that you are legally uh, obligated uh, to do, you know, court appointments, things like that, uh, then uh, those are all considered to be acceptable uh, reasons. But otherwise, it's really, during those times, it's really uh, just uh, to and from your workplace, and uh, and that's it. As far as I'm aware, I don't think there's been any, there certainly hasn't been any such curfews in Canada during the pandemic, and I believe the last time any such curfew was enacted anywhere in uh, this country, I think, was during the FLQ crisis, which goes back a little ways. Oh, absolutely. So what has the reaction been like? Do you have a feel for what the community, uh, for what the city of Montreal, maybe the province as a whole, how they're feeling? Is it a bit of a mixed reaction? Uh, I think that's a fair statement. I think there's, uh, for every person who says uh, this is a huge infringement and it's not going to uh, produce any results, there's another person saying, oh, thank goodness, it's about time. Uh, you know, I the way I look at that is that uh, I think there, I think it does send a message to the population as to how serious the situation is, and it most assuredly is serious, at least when it comes to the amount of pressure on our hospitals and our healthcare system, and some of the consequences that could come if uh, if uh, these numbers of admissions uh, don't uh, get under control, but. I, I don't know, because we've never done this before, I think uh, there's some trepidation and I think we're going to, my, my expectation is that there's probably going to be, although maybe at first not much in the way of public outcry, I wouldn't be surprised if there will be uh, more dissatisfaction expressed as the curfew uh, goes on. Yeah, will we know a couple weeks in whether or not this curfew is actually being effective if it's working? And if so, uh, how? What sort of metrics would you be looking at? So uh, you raise a very good point. So the way this uh, infection works between its incubation period, the fact that it generally produces symptoms slowly over the course of several days, is that roughly speaking, the numbers of new cases today in the community really tell you about events that happened about two weeks ago. So in other words, even if you enact a measure today, or let's use the example of the curfew tomorrow, it's really going to be two weeks from tomorrow before you'll start to see a reflection in those numbers of new cases that will give you an idea as to whether that measure has had uh, any appreciable effect. So that's another very important point is that uh, you'll often see people saying, you know, three or four days in, we'll look, the numbers still are still climbing, it's not working, but that's simply too soon based on how this uh, virus works. 
So it's going to take the full four weeks, and will you be looking at things like caseload, positivity rate, ICU admissions, hospitalizations, all of those uh, metrics? Uh, all of those, and I mean, certainly at the present moment, there's a lot of uh, concerning uh, data coming out looking at, uh, the, as you mentioned, for example, the positivity rate. There's some neighborhoods uh, in Montreal where the positivity rate is getting upwards around 15 to 20 percent, which really tells you that as bad as the actual numbers are, we are very likely missing a lot of cases who aren't even being tested, and therefore the true magnitude of the problem is probably a lot larger than what the uh, already bad numbers are. Uh, reflect and yes, for uh, for sure. At the present time, especially in Montreal, it's appearing that it's going to be a major crunch for many of the hospitals, both on the ward beds as well as in the ICUs. And of course, let's not forget that as we uh, divert more and more of our manpower and our beds and our hospital resources towards the care of COVID patients, it becomes harder and harder to do everything else, the, the emergent and the urgent uh, surgeries. And therefore, you have a sort of a, a two-hit. You know, it's not only the COVID issue, it's the delay in all of the other necessary procedures that simply can't be done. You mentioned uh, our frontline uh, healthcare uh, workers. I wanted to ask you about at your hospital there at uh, Montreal Jewish General uh, Hospital. Uh, we're hearing that some nurses are voicing their displeasure after taking the first dose of vaccine, only to now find out that they won't be getting the second. Uh, do we know why uh, the government uh, of Quebec has changed course here? And should they have done that, do you think? Well, it's, it's certainly created some dissatisfaction. I think any time you lay out a plan and then change the plan after you've already started uh, the process, I think uh, that kind of uh, reaction is certainly to be expected. The, uh, the, the public health institute in this province has uh, laid out a series of arguments explaining why they believe that uh, a delay between the first and second dose longer than, uh, uh, than the uh, duration that was granted approval through Health Canada. They, they've laid out reasons why they believe that this should be safe uh, to do so. Uh, it certainly has engendered a lot of debate on, uh, on many levels. And of course, there were many people who had already received their first dose before this change in policy. And then they were told that their second dose is going to be, I, wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't say cancelled, but delayed uh, uh, by at least, it sounds like, at least a few weeks. So yes, there's a lot of people who are somewhat concerned. Of course, this is a debate that goes way beyond just uh, Quebec, as you're probably aware, just uh, today. Uh, in fact, President-elect Biden has uh, suggested that uh, America is going to be following exactly the same uh, policy of using all of the available doses as first doses. Uh, you know, and I think right. the United Kingdom is also doing, uh, is following the same policy as well. Yeah. Having said that, though, you can understand the displeasure of those frontline healthcare workers because, as I understand it, they actually had those second appointments already uh, booked and locked in, only to have them uh, taken away. Uh, just finally, Doctor Otten, even just with the first dose, though, uh, what sort of level of protection would they have, and would everybody have just getting one dose rather than both? So uh, the answer depends a little bit on which of the vaccine products you're talking about and uh, sort of how you, uh, to a certain extent, how you look at the data. The, uh, and perhaps most importantly is that just like any other vaccine, you don't achieve protection immediately after. Uh, you need enough time for the immune system to actually mount its full response. And I think it's a fair statement that probably you require a minimum of something like 10 to 14 days before you have a reliable level of, uh, of uh, protection from that first dose. In other words, you can get the 
first dose and uh, be exposed and still go on to develop the disease certainly in the first week uh, after you get that uh, first dose. That doesn't tell you that it's a failure. That's just how vaccines and the immune system uh, work. But the the general numbers that uh, we're looking at for the uh, effectiveness after the first dose uh, is a minimum with the Pfizer product, a minimum of 50-something percent. And again, depending on how you look at some of the uh, analyses, you could uh, uh, interpret as being up to 90% effectiveness after the first dose. Although, of course, one of the big issues is we're not, it's not clear how long the protection from that only one dose uh, will last because that's not the way that the studies were designed. That's not, they only had that three-week or four-week delay uh, before the second dose was given. So they don't have solid long-term data, although there's some uh, reason to believe from other vaccines that that first dose will probably protect for at least several weeks. All right. Dr. Matthew Otten is an infectious disease expert at Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. Dr. Otten, good luck to everybody there with the curfew. We'll be watching, and thanks for the time. Uh, my pleasure. Have yourself a good weekend. Okay, we've got lots of news when it comes to travel in the airline industry on this Friday. So let's get right to travel expert Marty Firestone. He's the president of Travel Secure and joins us here on Global News Radio. Marty, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, too. All right, let's start with the breaking news. WestJet slashing 1,000 jobs today. Now, they're blaming, at least in part, incoherent and inconsistent government policy. That's their words. Is it that, Marty, or is it just the fact that we're not traveling? Well, you know, I'm supposed to be the travel insurance expert, but I tell you, I have some real interesting opinion on this one. I think this goes back to the government and them arguing over uh, bailout money, and then the government saying, well, then refund all the uh, clients or travelers that you only gave credits to. And I think this has just ballooned and blossomed into a huge problem right now. Wow. So, I mean, something's got to get solved here then, because there's there's too many casualties, too many people getting caught in the middle here, whether it's passengers wanting a, a refund or now people losing their jobs, Marty. Yeah, but there's a connection to them both. Like, you would think the government would offer a bailout, but they're trying to say, give the people back the money they're entitled to, and then we'll give you the bailout. Meanwhile, if they don't get the bailout, how do they survive? So it's, you know, it's a catch-22, and I don't know how it's going to get solved, because right now it's it's words going back and forth, for sure. All right, so there's no end in sight as far as you're concerned right now? I don't see one at all. As a matter of fact, even lately you've read news with respect to Air Canada paying uh, influencers with respect to incentivizing people to want to go down or to going to the pharmacy to get your pre-rapid tests so that you can go down and not have to quarantine. It's just like one side is saying one thing, one side's doing another thing, and they're both on, on, not on the same page. Canada does yeah. not want you to travel. Well, having said that, yeah, you're absolutely right. Air Canada is under fire for hiring some social influencers to promote travel. And obviously, travel is a pretty sensitive topic these days. We think of now former finance minister Rod Phillips. We led our show uh, this afternoon with uh, breaking news. The global news has confirmed that the police chief in Halton is in Florida. We're not sure of the exact circumstances to why he's uh, traveled there. They're still endeavoring to uh, find that out, but just the latest public official to have traveled and gone abroad. So is Air Canada, do you think they're in the wrong here by hiring these influencers to promote travel? I do. I do. But yet this is the people that offered free COVID-19 travel insurance with a cap of 200000 on it. 
a couple months ago, which for many reasons, you know, I'm totally against that. I never believed 200 was the right amount. You could end up in a hospital on a ventilator and be there at a half a million. So that was irresponsible. And how are you offering travel insurance when your government is advising you not to travel? So right there, that's a perfect example of this. And now paying influencers to to show that how beautiful it is to sit on the beach and drink a margarita, all wrong, all wrong on so many fronts. All right. Meanwhile, new rules have come into effect, as you're well aware, where uh, travelers coming into this country, into Canada, will now have to prove that they are COVID negative. Marty, can you explain to us what is being asked of travelers and will this work? Will this uh, make us safer? This is going to be a disaster. It's already proven to be a disaster, and I don't know what they're thinking. Bottom line is, If you were away and you didn't even know about this, you were in for a big surprise over the next week or two when you walk into the airport and they're going to say to you, where is your negative COVID test, PCR test, by the way? And you're going to say, excuse me, I didn't even know anything about it. So, well, sorry, you can't get on the plane. So that's number one, a huge problem. Even once we're away and coming back in April, that typical snowbird I talk about, they have to now scatter and arrange to get a test that will be within a 72-hour period when they get on. And the bottom line is, if you don't have the test, you're not getting on the plane. And if you are in a country that you can't get that test because it's not available, they're going to let you on the plane. But guess what? When you land, you are going to be visiting a 14-day quarantine in a federal facility. So that's pretty weird. And above all of that, I mean, this test is something you as a traveler have to get and administer yourself. This is not rapid testing at the airport just before you uh, get on the the plane. And that could be, I think, uh, problematic uh, as well. It's huge, and guess what? Who's paying for it? You are, because your travel insurance is not covering the cost of a COVID test that has been uh, demanded upon you by your government. So that's out of pocket. Think of a family of five that are returning from the Caribbean, and it's 120 to $180 a piece for that COVID test. And you just hope when you get there that it's still within the 72-hour time frame and that you can get on that plane. All excellent points. Martin Firestone, our travel expert. Marty, appreciate it as always. Have a happy and safe weekend. You too. Take care. All right. Marty Firestone is the president of Travel Secure. Well, he's the big shot smarty pants of Tesla, Elon Musk. And he has just, how about this, passed Jeff Bezos on Bloomberg's list of billionaires. And Elon Musk is now officially the world's richest person. And here with more on this is Mike Leon from Brand Heroes Marketing. He joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hey, Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. You know, I've been looking for myself on the list, and I've been scrolling uh, at, <laughs> since last night, and I still haven't got far enough down to, to find where I would uh, rank on this. But uh, this, <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, is this a bit of a surprise, though, Mike, that Elon Musk is the world's richest person? I mean, he was at, I think, number five just last year. So this is quite a jump. Yeah, you know what? It is a little bit of a surprise. And it's funny because I was I was reading his reaction to it on Twitter and you know I think he was a little surprised by it too, because his his exact words were, How strange. Well, back to work. (laughs) (laughs) And is that kind of the secret of his success? Because uh, Elon Musk, I know he's got his detractors, but uh, this guy just seems to be unstoppable. I mean, it seems to me like he's just working nonstop 24-7, that his mind is always thinking and working on things. Well, I think so. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, his his personal brand 
seems to be very much almost kind of the hero we need right now in a way. And, you know, I know this is a bit of a polarizing statement because there's certainly a fair amount of folks who don't like him. But, you know, there's Tesla sales have gone way up through the roof. There's been a lot of fascination over just the notion of what Tesla represents, of pushing the boundaries of, you know, trying to kind of make the world a better place, trying to kind of embrace freedom in a year where we haven't had a lot of those things. So, you know, there might be a direct correlation between that in general, Jeff. So I don't know. I think there's some interesting, really interesting story elements here to his brand that might actually be telling a deeper story about why he is the world's richest person now. Yeah, absolutely. Because you think about the electric cars with Tesla, you think about space tourism and exploration with a SpaceX. I know he's also uh, involved, and I think this is what catapulted him above Bezos, is a few pharmaceutical companies, drug companies searching for a COVID uh, vaccine. I mean, it seems as if, uh, I know the, the word fearless kind of comes to mind uh, when it's Elon Musk. He's, he's fearless, he's willing to, to take a, a risk. Totally. Fearless and kind of unapologetically fearless, too, which I think, you know, from a brand standpoint, you know, brands often kind of live in the here and now, but they also very much live in the aspirational. And Tesla, you know, and, and SpaceX, for that matter, are very aspirational brands. But Elon Musk has always had this ability to be both aspirational and a real doer at the same time. You know, there's a guy that, you know, like way, way back when was, you know, I think he was like founder of PayPal and then managed to translate that into a massive windfall. And then, you know, from there, just kind of kept going and going and going. So it was a career of dreaming and doing, followed by more dreaming and followed by more doing. So there's a real kind of aspirational, but also a real get it done kind of mentality, too. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's too closely tied to these companies and these brands, though? I mean, is there a, a potential uh, risk there? I mean, I, I'm thinking of Apple when Tim Cook tried to uh, take over. And if Elon Musk, uh, God forbid, something were to happen to him, I mean, is he so, so associated, he and his brand and what he represents with Tesla and, and SpaceX, that it could be crippling for those companies? You know what? It's an excellent question. And I, I think the answer to that is yes. And I think you're right. There, there's lots of cautionary tales around not doing that. Like, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, when he uh, when he first announced that he was undergoing cancer, uh, the stock tanked, you know, and when Jack Welch stepped down from, um, uh, from GE, same sort of thing. So it's a very, very fine balancing act because your CEO and the brand of that founder, especially somebody as, you know, as persuasive and as in, in you know, as energetic as Elon Musk, that'll attract a lot of people, investors, employees, all sorts of people. But then at the same time, it has to carry over to the leadership group. The people you hire should exhibit some of those qualities as well. The brand itself should live on to itself so that if Elon Musk does want to retire or does want to sell off, he can do that and be able to distance himself a little bit from the brand. Right now, I don't think he's in a position to do any of those things. I don't think he wants to do any of those things, but that is a problem for sure. He's not in a position to retire? He needs to talk to his financial expert, do you think? Make sure that uh, he's on the... Uh... <laughs> I think he'll be all right. I think he's going to be all right. But a guy that tweets well back to work, I don't think he wants to retire. <laughs> 
Well, this is it, right? Because it's just his personal ethos. And uh, also, I think like attracts like. And part of Elon Musk and uh, the fact that he's so closely associated his brand with his uh, companies is that, uh, you know, there's a certain type of employee that would be attracted to and would want to work with and for an Elon Musk and his companies like Tesla or SpaceX. Totally. And I think the magic around kind of putting a little bit of healthy separation between the brand of a founder and the brand that they represent is to make sure that there's just enough Elon Musk in Tesla so that someone who wants to work with Tesla can see that, but also a little bit of difference too, so that there is a different brand from what Tesla stands for, what SpaceX stands for, and what Elon Musk stands for. And then, you know, you get people who want to work for those brands because they're in love with the brands themselves. And the fact that the founders are a part of it is a bonus, but it's not the only reason. And, you know, there's countless examples where, you know, people like in the early days of Facebook, people didn't want to work for Facebook. They wanted to work for Mark Zuckerberg. Now it might be arguably a little bit of a balance. The Facebook brand could live enough by itself that the reasons to actually show up that go well beyond Mark Zuckerberg. So I think that's a consideration potentially for for um, Tesla and SpaceX if they want to go that way. All right. You mentioned Zuckerberg. He's number five this year in the list, by the way, just under $100 billion at 99.9. And it's quite the race between uh, Musk and Bezos. You know, uh, Bezos is only $1.5 billion behind Elon Musk. So I don't know if all of us just bought one more thing on Amazon for Christmas. He might have passed Elon Musk. I don't know. (laughs) We could be having a very different conversation next year then, right? (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Mike, appreciate it as always. Have a happy and safe weekend. You too. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Mike Leon is the president of Brand Heroes Marketing.